The stove continues to be hot. Aaron Judge goes back to the Yankees. Catcher Wilson Contreras goes to the Cardinals. We saw the first ever MLB draft lottery. Pour one out for the Phillies. And MLB keeps messing around with the baseballs. Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. And the biggest news breaking early on, on Wednesday, I don't even think Jeff Passan had woken up at the winter meetings yet, was Aaron Judge is going back to the Yankees. The final deal ends up being nine years, $360 million. So in Average annual value of $40 million per year. And if you'll remember, right around opening day, Ryan Cashman sat in a press conference, GM of the Yankees, and said that we offered seven years, $213.5 million to Aaron Judge, and he turned it down. And one, wild that he just came public and said that. But Aaron Judge bet on himself, and in the end, he won. He went from $30.5 million per year to $40 million per year and went from a seven-year deal to a nine-year deal. So this is an example of a player trusting their own talent and having the confidence to go out on a platform year and winning. And so a couple different things to look at on this. One, I find it really interesting that just like the Trey Turner deal, one of the teams in on this was the Padres. I mean... It's the Padres offered 400 million over 10 years. So the same annual average value as the Yankees, albeit higher income taxes in California than in New York, a couple percent, not significant, but a couple percent. And they said no. And so this is Trey Turner and now Aaron Judge that they struck out on. If the Padres had made that deal, they would have been. Like, just imagine that lineup as far as Juan Soto in left, uh, Aaron Judge in right, Fernando Tatis leading off with Manny Machado batting probably third or fourth or something. Just an insane lineup to think about. Uh, and they would have been one of the first teams to have three $300 million players. Instead, that goes to the Yankees. The Yankees have, obviously, Aaron Judge, nine years, $360 million. Uh, Garrett Cole signed for nine years and $324 million uh, to, before the 2020 season. And then Giancarlo Stanton signed for 13 years and $325 million. So the Yankees are the first team to have three 300 million players at the same time. Absolutely wild. The other team in on this was the San Francisco Giants. Uh, you know, Aaron Judge grew up there in California, so they're kind of close to you know where he's from. And we know that the deal, as of time of recording this, was around $360 million. We don't know if it was 9 years or 10 years. Obviously, that makes it a little bit different. If it's 9 years, it's right there on that $40 million annual average value. If it's 10 years, it's obviously 36, and it's a little bit less than everybody else was. Uh, but at the end of the day, he goes back to the Yankees. Kind of feels like that's probably where he should have been. And so when you look at how the Yankees construct the lineup now, you're in a situation where Aaron Judge back to right field. Harrison Bader obviously is back and is healthy. 
to play center field for you. He came over in that August trade from St. Louis and didn't get healthy until the playoffs. And then now you can take Oswaldo Cabrera, who you were using in right field while uh, Bader was out and Judge was playing center. You can now move Oswaldo Cabrera to left field. He had one of the shorter outfield tenures for the Yankees and yet led the team in outfield assists last year. I think he had seven to Judge's six, maybe. And so now you have a deployment of Cabrera, Bader, and Judge that should be above average defense with good arms in the corners. And then Giancarlo Stanton as your DH. Your infield is still a situation you've re-signed Anthony Rizzo. So you've got Rizzo at first. Gleyber Torres at second, Josh Donaldson at third, pending some sort of trade. Uh, and then your, your shortstop position is somewhere between Oswald Peraza, who they called up last year and famously did not play until the very end because they were giving starts to Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who re-signed to avoid arbitration, signed a one-year deal. I believe this is the final year of team control before he's a free agent. Uh, if it's me... Obviously, little biased. I host a prospect podcast. I'm arguing you play Oswald Peraza at short. Again, Oswaldo Cabrera and left. And you have Isaiah Conner Falefa is your middle infield utility guy. DJ LeMayhew is your corner infield utility guy. Aaron Hicks is your backup outfielder. And you have either Jose Trevino or uh, Kyle Higasoka as your catchers. I don't necessarily know which one they prefer to be the starter and which one they prefer to be the backup. I don't quite know enough about that, but I feel like that's probably your ideal lineup. Uh, And then, of course, you have the question of if you decide Anthony Volpe is ready later in the season, which I think he will, where does he slot in? Um, This is, you know, that gives you options. Again, depth will always work itself out. I would love for you to have one more option than you think you need, then be perfectly suited at every position knowing you're going to have injuries. People are going to miss time. Um, it, it could be something as simple as getting spiked on a double play. Like, it, things happen. Ju- Aaron Judge, back to the Yankees, was the right place to go. I expect them to name him the captain, and he'll be there through his age 40 year. Uh, Wilson Contreras goes to the Cardinals. Interesting for a couple reasons. One, five years, $87.5 million. A little bit less than I expected. I thought it was going to be a little bit more money I kind of thought there was a chance we'd see him hit $100 million. Turns out, just under that on a five-year deal. Uh, He is 30. He'll be, I think, 31 when the season starts. This takes him through his age 37 year. Uh, This gives you Andrew Kinsner as a backup now. And then, obviously, you still have Ivan Herrera, who we've had questions about when is Ivan Herrera's offense going to catch up. Uh, You've got him in AAA, so you have plenty of depth. But he fills two needs at once, right? He gives the big bat they need in the lineup to surround Goldschmidt and Arenado. And then, again, now you're in a situation where the DH spot is open. You can prioritize offense there with Nolan Gorman. Or you can take a guy like a Juan Yepes and play him there in the DH role. But in the meantime, you're looking at Goldschmidt, Arenado on the corners. Tommy Edmond, your shortstop. Brendan Donovan's probably your, se- your best second baseman. Again, he was the one that always came in for Nolan Gorman. When Nolan Gorman uh, started games, they would sub out for Donovan for defense reasons later in the game. Your outfield, some combination of Dylan Carlson, Lars Newtbar, Tyler O'Neill, prospect Alec Burleson. Like, there's some combination of those guys out there for the outfield. 
You have your four, uh, your infield utility guys. One, Yepes can play corner outfield and corner infield. Obviously, Nolan Gorman can play first and third. Uh, used him at second. Don't know if he'll be DH or if he'll actually be there. And then Paul DeYoung can play in your middle infield. So you've got options all around. And then this doesn't even talk about third baseman and outfielder Jordan Walker, who I've been talking about for a while. I expect to be one of the breakout players in 2023 and contend for Rookie of the Year in the National League. So plenty of options. Again, uh, depth will work itself out. I would imagine, unless he absolutely crushes in spring training, you'll see a situation where Jordan Walker will stay down until just after the Super 2 deadline. Unless they truly believe that he's going to contend for Rookie of the Year, him and Corbin Carroll. Because then, if you finish first or second in Rookie of the Year, you can get draft pick compensation for it. So there's a scenario where they are incentivized to go ahead and let him start the year and figure out who in the outfield is left out because we need to get Jordan Walker in the lineup. In just a minute, I want to get to the first ever MLB draft lottery and look at some of the winners and some of the losers. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at BetOnline. BetOnline.net is your number one source for sports betting info, stats, news, and analysis. You get the latest odds and trends for every professional amateur league out there. Uh, Football, college, and pro. The bowl games are coming right now. The NFL is in the stretch of the playoffs. Basketball, men and women, college and pro. Uh, College basketball season is picking up. You'll see conference play starting around the first of the year. Uh, Soccer, the World Cup, they're still finishing that up right now. And the esports at betterline.net. And then if you want to stick to baseball, if you're a Yankees fan and you knew that Aaron Judge was going to come back to the Yankees, if you had bet on it at BetOnline, they moved the Giants to the favorite about a week and a half or two weeks ago. And so you could have made some money by going out there and betting on free agency. They still have props out there for Dansby Swanson and Carlos Correa. Uh, you, can, you, you can still go out and bet on those and what team they're going to go to next if they don't re-sign with their original organizations. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action because bet online is where the game starts. Okay, we saw the first ever MLB draft lottery. The way that this worked is we took the 18 non-playoff teams. And everybody had a chance to get the first pick. Very similar to how the the NBA does their lottery. So the three worst records were the Nationals, the Athletics, and the Pirates. And they each had 16.5% odds of getting selected. The playoff teams were done in a new system that combined postseason finish, revenue sharing status, and regular uh, regular season winning percentage instead of just reverse order of finish. And so there's some winners and some losers in this. Um, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates get the first pick. Uh, so they, they are primed to take either a top hitter or a top pitcher. Dylan Cruz of LSU, the outfielder if it's a hitter. Chase Dollander from Tennessee if it's a pitcher. Your number two pick, the Washington Nationals. But the Oakland A's are one of the big losers here. They had the second worst record in baseball Same odds as two other teams to get the number one overall pick, and yet they fell down to six. And you have to remember here, it's not just where you pick an MLB. It's also the money that's there in your bonus pool. So a couple reasons why you have teams that lose. The Royals, for instance, they're losers because they fall to number eight. And this is a seven-player draft. Every draft, there's that first tier of talent that this is the the top guys. 
the uh, the Royals fall just outside of that top tier. Uh, you know, in seven seven player draft, they're number eight. And so, unless there's an unexpected pick, like how we saw Kumar Rocker go so early last year, then the Royals are in danger of not getting one of the top talents. The Phillies are one of the big losers because of how far down they dropped from the old system, which was just regular season winning percentage, to the new system. So they are 29th. And with the regular system from last year, they would have been 20th. So they dropped nine spots from where they would have been. Um, Whereas the Dodgers, for instance, went from 30 to 26. So they gained four spots. The Blue Jays gained four spots to, to 20 from 24. The Cardinals up to 21. Now, caveat here, some teams can move. The Mets are at 22. The Dodgers are at 26. If they exceed the $230 million luxury tax threshold by more than $40 million, their first round pick drops 10 spots. So the Mets and the Dodgers could both drop out of the top 30. And then in that case, everybody moves up possibly two spots. So your number 23 pick for the Mariners is actually number 21. And the Mariners also got a compensatory pick as well as an extra pick in the supplemental round for Rookie of the Year Julio Rodriguez. So they have three picks in the top, I believe, 35, which means their bonus pool is going to be massive. So there's winners and there's losers. Another winner is the Twins. The Twins would have picked somewhere around 15. And instead, because of the lottery system, they picked number five. Uh, The Reds are a winner by being at number seven. And it's really interesting here. Uh, Reason number one the Reds are a winner is... They're in that top seven to get one of the top talents. Now, again, unless there's a surprise, they won't get to pick their own top talent, but they'll, they're guaranteed to get one of those top seven with the caveat that the top seven could change. There's still a whole season of college and high school baseball to play. But the other reason, the lottery system is set up for the top six. And the anti-tanking provisions punish you for being in the top six too often, uh, depending on whether you're a revenue sharing team or a non-revenue sharing team, it's either over three or five years, you can't be in there more than a certain number of times. So the Reds being at seven means they have not yet used one of their appearances at the top of the draft in the lottery. So if they were to be bad for a few more years, they have not burned one of those shots at picking in the top six. So Worked out well for there. And if you're looking at the pitchers and the hitters uh, that might go, I mentioned it, but the number one player as of now going into the college season is outfielder Dylan Cruz of LSU. Something, I mean, between two seasons in college, he's hit 40 home runs. And he's seen as potentially a a five-tool talent. He's got a strong arm, he can play right field, good defense in the outfield, I think could get by in center, but you like him as a plus defender in right. The power potential is there. He can hit for average uh, as, you know, having a strong arm. You've got all five tools that are potentially there. Behind it, some of the other top picks, and we'll do a full, you know, mock draft, draft preview next week now that everybody knows where they're picking. But shortstop Jacob Gonzalez of Old Miss is one of the top position players seen as a high floor because he's a good defender with good contact ability. Uh, Over two seasons in the SEC, including a national championship year last year with 
316, 424, 560, 30 home runs. Now, pending the physical development, he may have to move to third base if he gets too big. He's already 6'2", but um, he's athletic. He's got good enough speed to stick. Uh, and the swing, really smooth, easy lefty swing. He hits uh, it's a nice line drive stroke. As he grows into the power, you could see the potential to become an impact hitter. Uh, behind that, you have a power hitter in outfielder Wyatt Langford of Florida. Again, a corner outfield type, but somebody who has tons of power uh, It has shown it at the college level. 2022, he was 356, 447, 719, 26 home runs, tied a Florida program record that I believe he held with Pete Alonzo, led his team in all three hitting categories as far as the slash line goes. So batting average on base and slugging, home runs and hits and in runs and triples in total bases. Uh, and he was sixth amongst all division one hitters tied with Kevin Parada in home runs. So Kevin Parada hit enough home runs to be a top 10 pick last year. So kind of gives you an idea there. And then behind them, because I like mentioning him, I think he's a great talent, outfielder Enrique Bradfield of Vanderbilt. Old school leadoff type. Doesn't have a ton of power, but blazing fast and almost impossible to throw out stealing. If you're looking at pitchers, couple options. Chase Dollander out of Tennessee. Plus stuff across the board. Fantastic 70 grade fastball command. Uh, the, the comparison that you're seeing, and I don't do comps, this is from other people, from scouts, from things like that, is a young Jacob deGrom. As far as what his arsenal is, his command, and what he could develop into. Um, right-hand pitcher Rhett Louder from Wake Forest is another guy that is notable for not only being very accomplished, but we've talked about this before, those Wake Forest guys, that Wake Forest pitching lab, they come out very good. 99 in the third innings last year, 2.37 ERA, Increase his fastball velocity about two miles an hour to the upper half of the 90s. Can just pound the strike zone with strikes. Has a mid-80s changeup, a low-80s slider. Uh, all three of them work really well. Pitch for Team USA this summer looked really good. And then the flip side is you have right-hand pitcher Hurston Waldrop of Florida. We've talked about this before, but Florida doesn't do a great job of developing their pitchers like a lot of other schools do. So... Had 140 strikeouts last year with Southern Mississippi. Transferred to Florida. You know, is already bringing in a fastball that sits mid-90s. He's, you know, it can touch 97-98. He's got a hard slider. Uh, already had a 54% swing and miss rate. Um, and depending on what Florida can do with him, if they don't, if they show, if he flashes the same and he doesn't improve that much, he's going to be appealing as, here's a guy with some extra potential we can unlock because we've talked about Florida sometimes struggling to unlock the extra out of their pitchers. In just a minute, I want to get to some of these shenanigans that we've seen with the baseballs, the actual baseball that you play with, off of a new report that just came out right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. And we're back. Before we get started, quick reminder, we now have a, a Discord, Locked on MLB Pro Prospects Discord, full of baseball fans having conversation about everything from prospects to free agency, rooting for their teams, anything you can think of. Link is in the episode description and in the show notes. Free to join, come in there, hang out. Gives us a place to be if Twitter implodes one day. So another report about the baseballs came out from Baseball Insider. You'll remember conversation in the past about how the baseballs were changing 
the baseballs were different. MLB had the juiced balls, and then they killed the balls. So what this new report discusses is, despite what MLB has said, there were multiple different balls used in MLB last year. So there, some of them were the juiced ball from earlier seasons. Not a ton of them, but some of them were still in the rotation despite MLB claiming that they were all already done and removed from circulation. A majority of the balls were the dead ball. So to kind of explain and remind you how this works, every baseball is handmade by MLB's facility in Latin America. And how far the ball flies can be manipulated based on how tightly you wind the core. Because when the baseball is made, they're winding the core, you know, so it's a, it's a rubber core with, with string wrapped around it. They're winding the core to a specific diameter, not a specific weight. It has to fall within the, the guidelines for the baseball, but those are so large that just about everyone does. And so the tighter that it is wound at the core, the heavier the ball is, the harder it comes off the bat when you swing and the farther it flies. So MLB claimed that we were on nothing but the dead balls last year. In 2022, it was nothing but the dead balls. Meredith Willis, uh, a, a Saber award-winning astrophysicist, has been conducting research. And she got her hands on more than 200 balls from the 2022 season. And found out that there wasn't just one ball, the dead ball, in circulation. There was three. There were some of the juiced balls that were all made in, you know, 2020, 2021, like Manfred talked about. There were some of those in circulation. Most places got the dead ball. But then there were also some different balls that kind of fell in the middle between juiced and dead. And she called them Goldilocks balls. Uh, and and it's really interesting where those balls were found. Now, Rob Manfred claims that the differences in individual balls when they are measured comes down to natural variation because these are handmade products. But she has found going off of the average weights of the balls and the distribution in the sample, there are three distinct balls. There is the juiced ball, the dead ball, and the ball in the middle. And where the ball in the middle, more batter-friendly profile than the dead ball, was found was really interesting. So most of those Goldilocks balls, as they called them, were found at three different places. One, some sort of event that had a commemorative stamp on the ball. So this was the Home Run Derby. This was the All-Star Game. Those had it. This was also the Texas Rangers. They had a special ball to commemorate the 50th anniversary of their inaugural season. They didn't use it all the time, but they used it on specific homestands. I actually was at one of those. They hosted the Braves earlier in the year, and I was there for that home series. So commemorative stamped balls. So that was one set. Set two was balls for marquee events. Again, the Home Run Derby, the All-Star Game, the postseason. Those balls had a more hitter-friendly profile. And then the third type of place you found those more hitter-friendly balls was later season Yankees games. And so the obvious implication here, the obvious suggestion is that MLB fed the Yankees juiced balls. 
Now, I think there is a reasonable explanation because MLB used special balls for the Yankees that had some preliminary markings on them for authentication. They used invisible ink and some other things. The idea was if Aaron Judge hits his 61st home run and a fan catches it and offers to sell it back to the Yankees, they need a way to make sure that the ball he is offering to sell is the game-used ball and not one he pulled out of his pocket. And so they used invisible ink and some different things to mark those balls before they were put into the game. And it is entirely possible that they grabbed those balls from the same place they grabbed the commemorative balls and the marquee event balls and that those happened to be made at a different time and be more hitter-friendly. But, MLB has not earned any benefit of the doubt when it comes to the baseballs because they've done nothing but disassemble and deny and deflect any accusations about the ball or just flat out refuted the research and said that it was wrong when somebody comes to them with science and says, these balls are different. You said they were the same. Why? This presents a lot of problems. One, it's really just. It's frustrating that baseball is so big into statistics. Baseball is so big into tracking and quantifying every single thing in the game, yet you have varying distances in parks. I mean, you have some parks with incredibly short... The pesky pole in Fenway is like... I think it's under 300 feet for a home run down the line. Uh, You know, you have parks that have incredibly high walls or deep walls. You can change the dimensions and that that's not consistent. And then now, two, you're messing with something as fundamental as the baseball they play the game with. And MLB players know about this. I mean, when you watch a pitcher, when you watch an MLB pitcher, and you watch them get a ball from the umpire or from the catcher, oftentimes you'll see them squeeze it and just throw it out and ask for another one. Because they're having to test on the fly what type of ball is this. Is this a dead ball? Is this a juiced ball? Is this a Goldilocks ball? And they're having to throw out the juiced balls or the balls that the cover's different and not scuffed up correctly because they don't have a consistent method of applying the, the, the rubbing mud on the baseball. And so like, it presents issues with that. It's just, it, it makes you question, and I'm not saying that we can't believe them, but it makes you question some of the statistics. Like, if Aaron Judge had the same ball everybody else had, how many home runs would he have hit? Would he have hit 60? Would he have hit 55? We don't know. And we have no way to know because the ball was different. Uh, The other thing that it makes you wonder about is how long until this becomes a legal issue for the league. And by that, I mean, what's stopping a, a player from taking this data right here and saying, I was given a dead ball in my platform year, in my walk year before free agency. Aaron Judge was given a juiced ball. He outperformed me by this much in 2022 when our historical difference in production has only been this. His contract was this big. My contract was only this big. And I'm going to sue MLB for the difference. Or a team. Let's say that Aaron Judge never hit 62 home runs ever again. What's stopping the Yankees from going to MLB 
and saying, we're going to sue you because we would not have given him a contract that big if he had not hit 62 home runs. And we can, we're going to argue that he wouldn't have hit that many home runs if you hadn't have given him a Goldilocks ball versus a dead ball. So it has the potential to open a can of worms and really just make all of us question everything that we know about what happened on the field. MLB needs to give answers, one, honest answers about the baseballs and what are they doing with them and where are the baseballs coming from and what type of balls are they. And two, they need to pick one and stick with it. If you've got questions for the show, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. Or you can email us, LockedOnMLBProspects at gmail.com. You can also drop your questions in our new Discord. The link is below in the show notes and in the episode description. Until tomorrow's show, this has been Locked on MLB Prospects. Oh.